0: Okay, if you will um, uh, take a look at the lecture outlines on page 11. And um, I want to go briefly over this recommended method, which to some degree will um, overlap with our discussion of Hort's process. And then after we go over that, I'll talk about the paper that I have just uh, handed to you. And uh, in in effect, we will do a sample with a textual variant. And um, we may have time to do an additional one more briefly. And um, the thing for you to do is the rest of this week to look carefully at my paper, to begin uh, doing your paper, do as much of it as you can. Uh, And then on Monday, we should have some time for questions that you may have before you complete uh, the assignment. But um, this recommended method, where you have rather discrete steps one by one, I hope you realize that, you know, when I am faced with a, a textual problem, when I'm faced with a textual problem, I don't, you know, do this step by step by step by step any more than when you get into a car you say to yourself, Well, first I've got to put the key in the ignition, then I have to do this, and then I have to do the other. It just you know everything kind of merges more more or less. But if the first time, you know, <laughs> you hadn't go through the process step by step you know, it would be a problem. So that's what we're doing here, making you self-conscious of what kinds of things to keep in mind, putting them in some kind of logical order, even though uh, some of your own work in the future, whenever you deal with these problems, may may be of a different character. And obviously your own style uh, is going to determine uh, how you uh, handle this sort of thing. But anyway, the first thing that uh, you're supposed to do is to list the variants in this particular, whichever path that you happen to be dealing with. Uh, And probably, unless it's perfectly obvious, but it may be a good idea for you to give a translation of each of the variants uh, so that you understand exactly what what the difference between the two options uh, may be. And then you notice that I have uh, divided the rest of the uh, work basically into two major uh, considerations. One is internal evidence and the other one is external evidence. Now you will recall that when we were dealing with Hort's method, I uh, pointed out that what, what, what Hort calls internal evidence of documents, most people today Uh, put under the category of external evidence, external evidence, and that's what we're doing here. I'll I'll say more about that in a minute. But uh, first of all, you look at the internal evidence, and remember you have these two different perspectives, one from the author's perspective, the other one from the scribe's perspective. Intrinsic probability uh, are questions about the author's style, the context, those kinds of things. Now let me give you a warning right now, and I'll try to repeat that a couple of times. This is what for most of you is, is the fun thing to do. And uh, what happens sometimes is that a student will uh, write a, this assignment and uh, you know say an awful lot about this, check all the commentaries, you know, talk about uh, style or the theology and try to do a lot of exegesis. This is not an exegetical paper. In a sense, is what I'm least interested in right now. Uh, I want you to deal with it, but to deal with it briefly. I don't want you to spend time with the concordance looking to see what uh, you know the author's uh, patterns uh, may be. I mean, you can do a little bit of that work if you want to. I'm not saying you cannot do it. All I'm saying is that this is only a, a part, and relatively speaking, not a really significant part of this assignment because I am more concerned to find out whether you have grasped the, the text critical principles, uh, particularly in, in the case of external evidence, by the way. But uh, don't, um, don't spend a lot of time on, on this matter and, and don't use up a lot of space in your paper uh, dealing with that. But you do have to take it into consideration, uh, otherwise uh, the rest of the, of the work isn't going to, to uh, cohere. Then secondly you have transcriptional probability. Now remember that the uh, the question here is what is a scribe most likely to have done? And that uh, the the particular focus of your uh, exercise at this point ought to be to try to determine which variant most likely gave rise to the other variant and you remember the way that I put it before uh... what you do is you take variant x let's say and you and you ask yourself now let's suppose that variant x was the original can i explain how variant y may have developed from variant x and you may be able to come up with one or two good reasons uh, that uh, that makes sense in this case. Yeah, if, if, uh, if variant X was the original, I can see how a scribe might have come up with Y. And then you reverse your argument. I say, okay, now let's suppose that Y was the original reading. Can I explain how a scribe might have come up with X on the base of Y? See what I'm saying? And uh, you make Come up with a good reason for that as well, or you may not. But uh, what you're trying to determine is if you can come up with a rationale, if you will, for the, for the history of the text at that point, how one uh, reading might have uh, given rise to the other one. Now, to help you in answering that kind of question, you want to uh, review what Metzger has to say in Chapter 7 of the book. Uh, which is entitled The Causes of Error in the Transmission of the Text, The Causes of Error. And so he catalogs, you know, the unintentional changes and the intentional changes. Be sufficiently familiar with these kinds of scribal patterns so that when you're dealing with transcriptional probability, you can come up with one or two of these which may be applicable to the particular problem that you're dealing with. And then you draw your conclusion on the basis of, int- of intrinsic and transcriptional probability. Now, at that point, you see, uh, you may have a conflict. It may be that uh, your examination of intrinsic probability led you to think that X was the original reading. But then when you went to transcriptional probability, oops, that leads you to think that Y now you have a conflict between intrinsic and transcriptional. Generally speaking, and again this is a very rough, you know, a rule of thumb, but generally speaking it may be a, an idea to give more weight to transcriptional probability than to intrinsic. <coughs> Why? Because when you're dealing with intrinsic material, you know, there's more of the subjective element at that point I think. You know, what do you believe poem most likely would have said you know matters of style and, and, and uh, the theology of the writer and so on, whereas when you're dealing with scribal tendencies you, you do have you know some kind of data that you can that you're really uh, um, working from as people have examined manuscripts uh, so generally speaking uh, if if the two uh, if intrinsic and transcription seem to be, you know, here's a 50-50 chance, if you will, it may be a good idea to give additional weight to transcriptional rather than intrinsic probability. Once you have done that, uh, you're ready to move on to what I'm I'm calling here external evidence, and external evidence is documentary evidence. Now you're, you're going to evaluate the variance on the basis of the witnesses, or the documents that um, uh, give us these readings. The first item is individual documents. Individual documents. What do I mean by that? Well here you look at the Greek manuscripts, only the Greek manuscripts at this point, that uh, support, uh, you know, the respective variants. And uh, you look at the material that Metzger gives you in chapter, the chapter where he discusses the, uh, uh, the manuscripts, and you try to determine uh, which are the earliest manuscripts which seem to be the more highly regarded, generally speaking, and so on. And that's what I mean by individual manuscripts. That is, looking at, at the manuscripts one by one, individually, uh, which variant seems to be supported by the better manuscripts, by the earliest ones? Now here again, you may have to make you know, some sort of judgment if you find that they're good documents supporting both readings. Uh, you know, do you just take a majority or do you uh, look a little more closely at uh, just how better are some of these manuscripts and so on? Um and again, I'll give you an example in a minute of, of the best way to handle that kind of thing. The next item, groups of documents. I want you to scratch that out. Groups of documents, scratch that out. That is something that I have not dealt with. Uh, it, is, it is a rather subtle uh, procedure that um, Horde developed and uh, it isn't going to be relevant, I don't think anyway, in, in the passage that I want you to work on Uh, So forget about that, Maybe let me just say parenthetically, that uh, Hort realized that sometimes it is possible to to detect certain kinds of groupings among the manuscripts and the groupings are not exactly the same thing as the genealogical families, which is the important groupings that I do want you to pay attention to. Um, uh, To give you just one example, and then you can put it out of your minds. In the epistles of Paul, Hort discovered, and this is true, that Codex Vaticanus, which, remember, he valued very highly, uh, tends sometimes to group with the Western text. And he found that when Vaticanus and the Western text agreed over against the rest of the uh, groupings, That at that point, Vaticanus was not as reliable a witness. See, that is a group which is not, strictly speaking, a matter of of, uh, genealogical connections between the manuscripts. But having detected certain patterns that that may be relevant. Um, But it is a little subtle, and uh, you don't really have the information. In fact, I don't have uh, much of it to determine where the significant groupings are there anyway. And as I said, I think in the case of Matthew 24, uh, that's, it's not particularly relevant anyway. So, groups of documents, uh, I don't want you to uh, think about. But the next item is important. In fact, it's the main, most important part of this exercise. Dealing with genealogical relations or text types. Text types. <coughs> Uh, this is the part of the, ex- of the paper that you should spend the most time on. Uh, it should be a solid, substantive section of your paper, um, and it is the most difficult one. And so you're going to be tempted to deal with it rather superficially, and uh, you shouldn't. The method that I am recommending, which is somewhat based on Hort's ideas, but with some uh, qualifications, are first of all to identify the Byzantine reading. Now, what, what do I mean by that? <coughs> in many cases, not always, but in, in uh, probably the majority of uh, cases when you're dealing with uh, textual variation, you can in fact identify the variant that is clearly the reading that is found in the Byzantine text, that is the majority of the manuscripts which happen to be late. Now how do you find out uh, whether or not a variant is um, the Byzantine variant? Well, the text uh, editors make it easy for you nowadays. If you're using the UBS text Uh, that uh, reading or that witness will be described simply as B-Y-Z, italicized B-Y-Z. So if you see that abbreviation, B-Y-Z, it means that the majority of the manuscripts, which happen to be Byzantine uh, in their text type, um, support the particular variant that it is being listed under. If you look at the Nestle-Allen text, he uses the Gothic M, uh, you know, fancy-looking M, for the so-called majority text, the majority text. For all practical purposes, even though there's some, again, some subtle difference between these two things, uh, for all practical purposes, uh, that Gothic M is the same as the BYZ in the UBS text. So that if for one of the variants the editors give uh, these uh, symbols, that is your evidence of which variant is the Byzantine reading. Now why do we want to do this? Well, because according to Hort, uh, Byzantine readings are inferior. And even uh, people who today have moved a little bit away from Hort's theories will generally agree that this is probably a correct assumption. Uh, the Byzantine text maybe isn't quite as inferior as Hort uh, thought. Uh, we do need to pay attention to it a little bit more than Hort did. But it is still generally regarded as a derived text, a derived text, Uh, shows up late in the history of uh, the transmission of the documents. And so from Hort's point of view, you see, if you identify one of the variants as Byzantine, you don't automatically set it aside, but it is suspect. And then the rest of the steps are going to help you Figure out what to do with it. So, number two under that category is list non Byzantine support for this reading. Why are we doing that? Because if you cannot find any other support for that particular variant, then that probably means you can set aside that variant. It is distinctively Byzantine reading. It is probably late and derived from other texts. So, let's suppose, again, that you're looking at, um, you know, any particular variant. And you find, here's variant X and variant Y. And you find that um, variant X is supported by the Byzantine text. If it is not supported by anything else of real significance, then that is probably your your clue that this is an inferior reading and you probably shouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about it. But let's suppose that this reading is also supported by Codex Sinaiticus. Then at that point, you see, you have to list. Uh, There's also Alexandrian support, not just Byzantine, but also Alexandrian support for this particular reading, so I can't just throw it away. I'm going to have to to look at it with some care. Then the next item is to look at the witnesses for the other reading for why. And now you give a summary and an evaluation of the support in terms of text types for that particular reading. Then the next item, Trace the history of the text. Now, this is an interesting one. It's kind of difficult also. And I'm not expecting any, uh, you know, great strokes or brilliance or anything here. You ought to think of uh, this particular item as an attempt to summarize an attempt to summarize the evidence which you have just listed in the previous items and the best way to summarize that evidence is to try to uh, to present that in terms of of the history of the text that is how uh, how have these text types developed in connection with this particular text again i'll give you a couple of examples Uh, And uh, hopefully you'll see what what I have in mind. And once you finish all that, then you give me your conclusion on the basis of this examination of text types. The next step is conclusion from external evidence. In other words, at this point you you see what conclusion you came to uh, when you look at the individual documents simply as individual documents. And then you see what conclusion you came to when you look at documents as text types, as genealogical families. And then see if you can come up with a conclusion on the base of both of those. And then your final conclusion now takes your conclusion from internal evidence and your conclusion from external evidence. And then you come to something a little bit more definitive, hopefully. Now, um... Yeah. Um uh, there are a time when under internal there was a conflict between intrinsic and transpersonal. There'll be between individual and personal. Sure. And sure. Way back the uh yeah, that's right. Uh let me uh, clarify something now that I that I'll try to repeat uh repeat several times. When you're dealing with the documents as individual documents, You do not want to say anything at that point about text types. Don't tell me that, well, that uh, Codex Sinaiticus is um, a good representative of the Alexandrian family or whatever. That goes down under text types. Uh, Again, it is the difference that Hort described in terms of internal evidence of documents over against evidence of genealogies. Uh, the the relative weight or the relative importance of the manuscripts, you know, compared with one another. That's one thing. That's individual documents, and the other one is how do they um, uh, stack up in terms of their genealogical connections? Okay. Yeah. If we are um, process. We find in, uh, an agreement between the no you can't just stop but <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you're saying that if there's a combination of the Byzantine and the, and the Alexandrian text uh, that's um, that's pretty significant yeah but each case is different, and and what you will probably find is that the Alexandrian family itself may be divided. And then what do you do? You see, so, yeah. This is the family name of the documents that It's the majority of the manuscripts. Okay, that's the family name all That's right. Yeah. Do all of you have a copy of the? Uh, um, could you just pass these back and? Uh <coughs> yeah. No, I'll give you the I'll give you the uh, instance. Um, everybody have one. All right, let's look at this sample then. And um, I guess first of all, let me put it up in the... uh, Now this is from the uh, UBS text, the third edition. Uh, the, The apparatus will be a little different in the fourth edition. But all that I want to do at this point is um, give you a couple of, uh, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, you may recall this is where Paul is giving the farewell address to the Ephesian elders and he's encouraging them to, uh, you know, do what they ought to be doing and so on. And then in verse 28, uh, "Prosechete heautois, that is, uh, guard yourselves or, you know, watch over yourselves. Kaipanti toi poimnio and to all the flock in ho humas to bnuma to hagion etheta episcopus over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops or overseers, to shepherd poeminain, teine ecclesian to theu, the Church of God, which he purchased through uh, his own blood and the problem that i'm interested in uh, you know, giving you an example on is um, has to do with this phrase tain ekclesian tou the church of god uh, to um, shepherd the, sh- the church of god if you look down in the apparatus you see that the first uh, reading listed here is theu, which is the reading that they have adopted in the text, the Church of God, and they give you all the information. Then secondly, you have kuriu, the Church of the Lord, they give you all of the information. There's a third variant, kuriu kai theu, the Church of the Lord and God, With some information and then there are two or three other variants that are very trivial and don't really you wouldn't really need to worry about those because they're just trying to be exhaustive here but uh, basically you have this problem is it the church of god or the church of the lord or possibly both you know the lord and god so as you can see from the sheet uh, in front of you the first thing i did was to list the chief variant readings Theu with a little translation, Kuriu, and Kuriu kai theu. And that's simple enough, but you gotta start somewhere. Okay? Then we go to internal evidence. And we ask first of all, what is the author most likely to have written? That's intrinsic probability. And then you see my little comment there. Since the expression he ecclesia to theu that is, the Church of God, is fairly common in Paul. And I did check this out in the concordance, but, you know, it's no big deal. Variant number one would appear to be original. You know, this is uh, a, a discourse by Paul. And we find in the letters of Paul, that expression, the Church of God, is common. So in terms of stylistic patterns and so on, you could argue that way. On the other hand, this is not Paul's book. This is Luke's book. And Luke's own style may have affected the way he reported Paul's speech. I mean, we all know that when you have a discourse in the um, in the Bible, we're not getting the whole thing. We're just getting an abbreviated form of it. And there's probably some, um, you know, uh, reworking of it. Uh, it's, it doesn't pretend to be a verbatim account. And uh, it's quite possible that Luke, we know. Uh, his style was affected by the Septuagint and the Septuagint does have the phrase ecclesia uh, curiu a few times and so you might argue you see that in terms of intrinsic probability if you're thinking about Luke's own style maybe curiu should be the one whereas uh, the third variant both the Lord and God uh, just looks quite awkward. It it just seems out of character. It's not something that that appears elsewhere. And so from the point of view of intrinsic probability it is definitely an inferior reading. It's it's something that just doesn't make an awful lot of uh, uh, good sense, if you will. But um, you see, my conclusion if you will, from intrinsic probability, yeah, I suspect ecclesia tuteu, because that's the way that Paul normally spoke. But it's not a you know, black and white thing that you, you can be sure about it uh, because you have this other consideration, namely Luke's own style. Transcriptional probability. Uh, variant 3 may be set aside not only on the principle that the, that the shorter reading is preferred, but specifically on the grounds that it appears to be a conflation or a mixing together from the two other variants. In other words, the presence of variants one and two easily explains the origin of number three. Uh, if, uh, if you have this initial uh, variation among the manuscripts, it is very easy to explain how a scribe uh, may have seen, you know, two different manuscripts with th- the two variants and might have uh, merged them together or something like that. But it is the longer reading and normally Again, just as a general principle, the shorter reading is more likely to be the original one, and uh, that sort of disqualifies uh, the third variant. But now, how do we decide uh, about the transcriptional probability between variants 1 and 2? That's a little bit more difficult. And what I did here, and uh, you may not be able to do it quite the same way with your particular uh, subject but in this particular one it, uh, I found that it was useful to look at, at it from two uh, standpoints one or A uh, specifically at the level of language and style one can argue that Kuryu the reading with Kuriu, explains the origin of Theu why? because a scribe if he was familiar with Paul's letters would have seen that expression ecclesia to theu all the time and could easily have changed uh, an original curio to a theu. And all that I did there, by the way, was to use capital letters to help you uh, maybe visualize a little bit how in a manuscript you run all these things together. The curio would have been just the kappa and the upsilon with the line over it the theu would have been just a theta and the upsilon with a line over it. So it would have been very easy for a scribe to go from one to the other. Um, the, the other option that a scribe was familiar with the expression in the Septuagint and Ecclesia and change it to theu uh, seems much less likely, I think. But you see, this is a very interesting issue now. The very argument that um, you used under intrinsic probability to prefer the OO, now you're using it under transcriptional probability to prefer kuriu. Follow? I said, in the the intrinsic I said, the OO is the more likely one because that's what Paul usually does. Now I'm telling you, oops, but a scribe would have have been familiar with Paul's style. And he may have changed the career to theu knowing that that's what Paul was normally what he did. Now this is a very common problem where intrinsic and transcriptional probability are in tension because the very same fact can easily be explained both ways. And it's just something that you need to keep in mind. There are no formulas that tell you how to decide the problem. But you you try to get uh, as good a handle as you can on the whole picture, and then maybe you can uh, make a decision that that is responsible. There's another set of considerations here, which I have called the semantic level, because it has to do not so much with style, but with the actual meaning of the uh, sentence. Variant number one is more likely to be original on the grounds that it is the more difficult reading or at least it would have seemed more difficult to describe. You see, the clause that follows, which he purchased with his own blood, may have been offensive to some, because God is, doesn't have a body, and so he doesn't have blood. So by changing the reading from Theou to Kuriou, it would be a little clearer that the reference is to Christ, not to the Father. See what I'm saying? It is, it is a little unusual, to put it mildly, to speak about the blood of God, and that's what you end up, if you have through here, the Church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So for a theological or, or a semantic, that is a uh, uh, has something to have to do with the meaning of the passage, a scribe might have uh, changed Thu to Kuriu. Um, the problem, however, is complicated by the subtleties of the Christological debates in the early Church. And all that I'm saying here is that, say, in the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, uh, that this gets a little messy, you know. Uh, some of you who are taking or have taken uh, early, uh, ancient church know that, that there were problems in, in both directions, and in fact, in several directions. Uh, there are some people who felt very strongly that Uh, you know, in terms of the deity of Christ, what you can say about Christ, you can say about God, period. And that's why some uh, areas in the church believe very strongly that it was quite proper to speak of Mary as the mother of God. Not because God has a mother, but because you can say of Jesus as a human being, you can say of Him as as divine and so on. It gets, you know, very messy. And I wasn't going, I was not about to give you a, you know, tried to give a long discourse on, on the Christological controversies or whatever. But at least this one point is a is a reasonable one. Uh, we know that many people in the church would have had, uh, you know, um. felt uneasy about uh, referring to the blood of God. Yeah? Well, in the capital letters for the and and uh, those are abbreviations for, for the whole works. Standard abbreviations in the manuscripts. Uh, you know, God, the Lord, Jesus, Christ, also sometimes even the word for man, Anthropos, um, the cross, Stauros. You know, there are a dozen or so words that are very frequent in the New Testament, and there was, it became a standard practice among scribes to abbreviate them and then put a horizontal line over it. Yeah, they wouldn't be in capital letters, or would they be? In unshows. Because I'm, thinking about the earlier manuscripts uh, when, when uh, these uh, variants would have been uh, actually introduced. Yes, question? Conclusion from internal evidence. The principle that the more difficult reading is to be preferred gives a slight edge to variant number one, which is also supported on the basis of Pauline style. This conclusion is, however, tentative and debatable. Uh, I'm trying to be very cautious here about these things. All I'm I'm getting at is, uh, actually, I feel pretty good about this conclusion uh, because it is one of these cases where what seemed to me the better conclusion under internal evidence now fits in with uh, what I say under, uh, trans- under intrinsic probability fits in now with what I say under transcriptional probability because the principle of the difficult reading is, is, a, is a weighty one. Again, you can exaggerate it and misuse it and all that, but it is still a valid consideration because we do know, I mean we have plenty of evidence that, that scribes consciously or unconsciously often change the text uh, to avoid difficult readings and in particular the exchange of, uh, of the names of God is so common. I think I'm, I mentioned this before that even in church day when people are reading the Bible out loud they frequently will get Lord and God mixed up when they're reading. So it's a very common thing that happens unconsciously. If, if the scribe is writing you see he has the whole sentence in mind the uh, church of something which he purchased with his own blood it could have happened uh, without you know, his even being aware of it. Um, so it's, um, it's a reasonable conclusion, but it's not, you, know, you can't quite nail it uh, as much as you'd like. Then we move to external evidence. Yeah? Dr. Uh, so considering two varied readings, we have varied readings are just one word, are we safer in taking the shorter words is running no way for that? Oh no, no, that's no. That doesn't. Uh, I don't. I don't think there's any evidence that that is a pattern. Yep. Yeah. Notice that um, part of the detail, you know, from um, invest all the places where Paul uses this language, and kind other of texts. Is that a hint to us that we're kind of reading? Exactly. Say in Paul's you don't want hold whole bunch of people caught. Right. Now, if if you're making a certain claim. It might be good, at least, to tell me, you know, I got this from such and such a commentary or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't want that, a detailed uh, um, argument for it. Yeah. Okay, external evidence. First of all, look at the at the witnesses individually considered. Now, I don't want you here to make a long list of each document and give, you know, the date and give it. You know, I just want you to summarize the evidence. Suppose that you're writing this for a classmate, you know, or, or, a, a, or a class that uh, they have, they know a little bit of Greek. They've had some training in this area, but not too much. And you're just trying to make it clear what the basic information is. So look the way that I handled it. You don't have to do it exactly this way, but the two oldest tons That's a way of saying, hey, this is important. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus joined two other unshows that uh, date to the 10th century in supporting reading number one so that's my way of saying in 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 just one sentence that I think variant one has the better uh, support from the witnesses individually considered but again it's not a a real uh, easy uh, question here so There's a however, very number two, is found in Papyrus 74, which uh, goes to the 7th century, so it's not real old, but it's significant anyway. And in no fewer than five unshows, which date to the 8th century or earlier. And so I, I list those for you. Moreover, reading number two is supported by the two most significant cursives, 33, the Queen of the Cursives, and 1739, whose archetype goes back to the 4th century. Metzger tells you that in in his description of the document. So the evidence, guess what, seems really equally balanced. So even though I started by commenting on the significance of of, uh, the support for read number one, as I looked more carefully at number two, uh, I had my doubts. Why? Well, on the one hand, you have the very strong support of the two oldest unshows but you have a, a larger number of unshows uh... which are relatively early maybe not as early as, as uh... Like Vatican and St. and but pretty early really and so uh, i cannot really make up my mind about that but in the case of number three that's easy because the earliest support for it is in two manuscripts that are only as old as the ninth century yeah Where do we find the there are several places to find it. Uh, probably the most convenient place is in your Greek New Testament. Uh, either in the, intro, in the introduction to the UBS text lists all the dates. Uh, in the Nestle text, is at the in the back of the, uh, of the text. But in addition to looking at the date, again, you want to go back to that chapter in Metzger where he describes the manuscript so that you have the information you need. Okay, uh, groups we can ignore, forget about that. And we move now to text types. Now you notice that under individual witnesses, I said nothing about whether a manuscript is Alexandrian or Western or Byzantine. Uh, we, we weren't ready for that yet. But now we're going to. So, uh, A, which is the Byzantine reading? Reading number three. Or another variation, which is to Kuriu Tutheu, is found in the majority of the manuscripts, which happen to be late, and therefore they may be regarded, that it may be regarded as the Byzantine reading. Now I might uh, mention to you, you see, in the UBS text, at least in this third edition, uh, you have Kuriu Kai you have BYZ, but with the superscript PT. which means partly. In other words, the Byzantine text is divided at this point. And then under Koryu Tuthu, Koryu again you have B-Y-Z-P-T. So uh, part of the Byzantine uh, tradition supports Koryu uh, Kaithu, uh, the other one Koryu Tuthu, but you see that they're closely related because both of these readings happen to have both kuriu and Theu in them Um, and and that means that I can pretty much forget about uh, that third variant Uh, and you know by now at every step of the way uh, we have reason to think of that third variant as inferior yeah Let's no, not. Let's wait on that. For the time being, let's just try to identify the readings here. Now, this, the next thing, B, remember, is the question: is there, is there additional support for the reading which you have already identified as the Byzantine reading? And what I say is, well, it does appear in manuscript C as a correction. That is, a later scribe correcting the manuscript. Uh, um, gave this reading but there is no genuine non-Byzantine support for it that is you cannot find any clear either a manuscript or a version or a father that is whose text is Alexandrian or or Western or Caesarean or whatever and which has reading number three so we pretty much dismiss it but now we've got to assess the support that the, the text-type support for the other um, readings. Reading number one may be regarded as the Alexandrian reading. Why? Because you know, Alec, because Sinaiticus and Vaticanus have it. But not without qualifications, because reading number two is supported by the Coptic versions, which are an important witness to the Alexandrian text, by Minuscule 33, and by Codex Alexandrinus, Uh, Codex Alexandrinus, if if again you look at Metzger, he'll tell you that it has a Byzantine text in the Gospels, but in in Acts it is Alexandrian. So I can't just say, yeah, reading number one is Alexandrian. There is significant Alexandrian support for number two. Conversely, you might be tempted to say, well, variant two is the Western reading. And indeed, it is found in some typical Western documents, such as Codex Bizai, or D, a majority of the old Latin manuscripts, the Latin Father Irenaeus, etc. But, some representatives of the Western text, and I list some of them, support number one. Now, where do you get the information for this? Alright, you go to Metzger, And you go to page, beginning with page 213, 213. And he gives you here the Koine or Byzantine witnesses, and he lists them for the Gospels, Acts, Epistles. In this case, you, you, you would just look at the Acts part of it. Um, and uh, then the pre coinette coinate text, and then Western witnesses and the Alexandrian text uh, and so on. So on pages two thirteen to two sixteen, you have the grouping of the manuscripts on the base of text types. and that's where you get your information to be able to say something intelligent in that uh, in that part. Now, D. Uh, D is the business about trace the history of the text. In other words summarize, show me that you understand what you have just said. What significance does it have? And and, and, and so a good way of summarizing it is to try to come up with how the text may have developed. So this is the way that I did it. It is plain that both readings 1 and 2 are ancient. Why? They are broadly supported by early witnesses, and neither neither of them is restricted to a small geographical area. So, um, you see, both the Alexandria and the Western texts, we know, go back to a very, very early stage. Both readings are found in both of these uh, uh, text types. I, I cannot say that one of the variants is found only in a restricted geographical area, which uh, would be uh, an argument against it. Whichever reading is original, and the alternate variant probably arose prior to the Christological controversies, and so through normal scribal activity. What am I saying here? Because both readings are ancient, the variation in the text surely, you know, must have been already back there in in the early third or even second century so the 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 first time these readings the variation came up was not because of the debates as such but the debates later may have contributed to the dissemination of of one or another reading and that's why what i say later it is possible however that theological considerations may have affected the choice of one over the other in later centuries the fact that both readings were well known and widespread, no doubt contributed to their being conflated at a later stage, when the Byzantine text became standardized. In other words, both the Korea reading and the through reading were found in a variety of texts, and so that made it all the easier at a later point when the text was standardized uh, for those two to be combined into the, uh, uh, that conflation. What's my conclusion? The significance of the so called proto Alexandrian text type, and I'm referring there to, Alexand- to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, you see, the significance of that tips the scales in favor of number one, particularly since this reading, in addition to being the proto Alexandrian reading, is supported by diverse witnesses. In other words, you know what I'm getting at here? It isn't just a matter, okay, it's the proto Alexandrian reading even though everybody else is against it then you might have some more doubts but the point is that it isn't just the proto-alexandrian but you find it uh, attested in a in the wide variety of uh circumstances and situations the conclusion from text types however is hardly definitive it is again it is not an open and shut case conclusion from external evidence now i'm, I'm linking together the individual witness business with the textile business. While each of the three, well, two elements because I'm not worried about groups now. While each of the elements above, when considered in isolation, provides only weak support for reading number one. What I, uh, that's, I didn't phrase that very well. Uh, pro, um, provides um, support for, <laughs> how do I phrase this? it is stronger support than for number two, you see, but only a little bit more. That's what I meant to say, okay? Um, Nevertheless, their combined weight, individual witnesses takes you in one direction, text types takes you in the same direction, uh, that raises the probabilities. We may say with only mild qualifications that the OO is favored by external evidence. So, final conclusion. Neither internal nor external considerations give us an unambiguous answer, and so we are unable to reach complete certainty. On the other hand, we have found a relatively consistent pattern each step of the way, and may therefore regard read number one as original, (coughs) even though uh, you may have some doubts about it. Now, then you look at the UBS text and you find that they also had some doubts about it. They gave it a C, at least in the third edition. I don't don't remember what happened in the fourth edition. Um, And I would like for you, after you have gone through the process, to look at the textual commentary by Metzger, which is a reference in the library, and compare what you did with what they did. It's better to look at it after, and then it, it makes you a little bit more aware of, you know where you may have missed something, and but you can go ahead and, and uh, incorporate uh, what you get from from the textual commentary into your paper. Now your assignment is Matthew 24, verse uh, 36, isn't it? Matthew 24, 36. Now there are a couple of variations there, but the one that you're supposed to be concerned about is. Whether or not, (coughs) whether or not this phrase is part of the original text of Matthew. Neither the sun, neither the sun. Um, Of that day and hour, nobody knows, not the angels of heaven, nor even the sun. Now, this phrase, we also ask is definitely in the Gospel of Mark. In the same parallel in the parallel passage but in the gospel of matthew there is variation among the manuscripts so your mission is to determine whether in matthew's gospel this phrase was there originally please go over my paper uh, make sure you understand what's going on begin to write your paper